Ancient history has some of the best stories. The one that comes to mind, for me, is about this guy in ancient Greece named Diogenes. And Diogenes was a philosopher, and his whole big MO was that people don't need material things to, you know, flourish. We just should live off the land and be ourselves, and also society's fake and a facade and you're all nuts. Fun guy. Uh, he did live out this creed too. He didn't have a house or furniture or, well, really anything. He lived in the marketplace in a wine jug with almost no clothes and, like, not even a bowl. Fun dude. Anyways, one time he had this argument with Plato, another famous philosopher of the day, about what is a man? And Plato was like, well, ho ho, ho ho, ho ho, a man is just a featherless bird. Now, Diogenes is not a fan of this, so he walks off and, you know, doesn't, doesn't, no, one, no one hears from him for a few hours. And Plato's probably just, you know, in the academ academy, chilling, doing Plato things, thinking crazy thoughts, when Diogenes smashes back in through the door, waving around a shaved chicken, and starts screeching, Behold a man! Ugh. You know, philosophy used to be fun. There's another story about Diogenes that I really like. Apparently, one time, he met Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great would have been, like, the most powerful and also most dangerous person at that time, you know? Someone you probably don't want to get mad at you. But Diogenes doesn't care. Diogenes thinks society is a facade, remember? So when Alexander the Great comes up, he's like, Hey, you're, I've heard about you. You're, you're that philosopher. Great. Best buds. Is there anything I can do for you? Diogenes, who clearly does not like Alexander, is like, Oh yeah, there's something you can do for me. You can, and I quote, Get out of my sunlight. Moral of the story, at least in my unqualified opinion, is that you're never going to be so big that there isn't someone out there who wants you to just get out of their sunlight. So, maybe the lesson from history is to stay humble. You probably already noticed, but today's episode is going to be uh, long. Like, really long. A lot of stuff is going to happen in a relatively short period of time, and we're going to go through it one by one. So I'm going to stop talking, and we're just going to get on with it, shall we? I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note. Nuestras fuerzas deben proseguir sus operaciones contra el enemigo en todos los frentes de batalla. Revolución And that consequently, this country is at war with Germany. gentlemen, hello, and welcome to Storyboard History. Episode 1-2, Toe the Cataline. <music> 
Welcome back to round two of our little adventure on Cicero. There's a lot to get through today and in a pretty short period of time, so I'm just gonna go straight into it. Okay, so a quick recap of last time. Cicero is born, he's educated, and he shows a real knack for learning. He becomes a successful lawyer in Rome and then a successful politician. Now, his big thing, his like defining trait, is his ability to move crowds when he speaks. Not physically move them, like, you know, emotionally move them. He's a great speaker. In 63 BC, he was elected as a consul, one of the highest offices in Rome. He defeats Catiline for this position, and this defeat prompts Catiline to begin to enact plans to put himself in power through other means. Remember, Catiline's main platform was debt forgiveness for all, rich and poor. He himself was an aristocrat, but one in unpleasant financial straits. The Roman economy was taking a hit from reduced trade and tax income from the East, and many rich and poor families alike were in debt. Many of these urban poor rallied to Catiline, especially the young men, and so did the older veterans of Sulla's army, many of whom were also in financial, financial trouble. They maybe saw Catiline as a new Sulla. Remember, Sulla was the dictator who had seized control of Rome a few decades before all this happens. Pompey and his army are away in the east, and so the support of the people that he enjoyed is now transferred to this firebrand aristocrat. An aristocrat who's starting to think that power might have to be achieved through less conventional means. So, Cicero is consul. Woo! Celebration, right? Well, wrong. Immediately after he gets elected consul, the monster that is large-scale politics rears its ugly head. In addition to all of his regular duties as a consul, Cicero now has to deal with an intensifying animosity between social classes and different factions in Rome. They're all trying to fight each other and the Roman nobility. They're being super put on edge by reports that the loser of the last year's election, Catiline, was intent on stirring up some trouble. But I'm sure nothing's going to happen with that, and everything's just going to work itself out, right? Right? Now, sure, Cicero and the Senate were concerned about the possibility of a threat from Catiline, but they had other, more immediate problems. Different groups in the city were trying to rally the people's anger, you know, anger just in general, that they're poor, they're hungry, and no one seems to care, to their own cause. One of these groups were the descendants of those who had been killed during Sulla's proscriptions, Remember how being on a being put on a prescription list, which were the list identifying enemies of Sulla's regime for execution, meant that neither you nor any of your descendants could hold any public office whatsoever? Well, so do the said descendants, and they're just a wee bit upset about that. And since Sulla is gone, they thought, hey, this is an excellent time to reinstate ourselves. And there were a lot of them. Around the time Cicero was elected consul, there was a wave of these previously invalids running for office and seeking popular support, and their grievances were legitimate. I mean, they were upset, and they probably had a fair right to be. But it did cause a fair bit of chaos and uproar in a city that was already super-duper unstable from chaos and uproar. This new faction was really not what Cicero needed right then. Also adding to the chaos when he took office was the Tribunes. The Tribunes had started getting uppity. So, who are the Tribunes? Well, I should probably take this opportunity to give a super-duper basic outline of Roman constitutional structure. There were two main groups in Rome. Patricians, which were the upper social classes, and Plebeians, which were the lower social classes, so your rich people and your poor people. There were two assemblies that helped govern the city. The Patricians had the Senate and the associated consuls, 
and the plebeians had their own plebeian assemblies, which would elect tribunes or representatives of that assembly. The Senate was not like our Senate today. The members weren't elected by the people, but rather appointed by the consuls or other officials who themselves were elected by the people. As such, the ranks of the Senate were usually filled by ex-magistrates, so Cicero, Catiline, and many others in our story were senators, not because they'd been voted to, hey, I want this guy to be a senator positions, but rather they'd just been voted to any public office at all, which made them eligible. The Senate was also usually a body to advise consuls rather than promote, like, you know, actual legislation, but they could pass, like, official laws and stuff. And the influence of the men on the Senate was usually pretty big. So big that any Senate, uh, quote-unquote, advice was usually treated as law. Senators would also serve for life. The plebeians, the poor and the middle-class citizens, elected their own assemblies, and these assemblies could also pass laws to do stuff in the city. These assemblies would also elect tribunes to act as their representatives both in the city and on the Senate. These tribunes could veto Senate laws. They were tactically members of the Senate, although they didn't have the same standing as some of the other wealthier, more noble members. And the key thing is that only wealthy nobles could hold high public office. So, sure, a poor, regular guy could be elected as a tribune and be in the Senate, but that's as high as he could go. Like, a consul or any other sort of high official was almost exclusively reserved for members of the senatorial class, the highest nobility in Rome. So, around 63 BC-ish, the tribunes, emboldened by the masses behind them, start to get uppity. The assemblies and tribunes would have likely had many supporters of Catiline in their ranks. They proposed this new commission, this new legislative body of ten men. These men would have the power to sell public land, prosecute and banish people, found cities, use public funds, and levy and maintain an army. This was like a ton of power the tribunes were kind of just yanking out of thin air for these new positions. And the whole point of this was to give more power to the people and their representatives and less to the old men on the Senate who could traditionally run things. The Senate and the nobility, shockingly, were not fans of this idea. They did not like power being handed to people to handed to people who they thought were beneath them, especially when those people now had power over them. However, there were some aristocrats who seemed, you know, to be supporters of this, including Antonius the consul alongside Cicero. Remember, they elected two consuls every year. Cicero was one, and Antonius was the other. The idea of such a powerful official supporting such radical ideas freaked the absolute frick out of the old conservative factions, especially when it seemed like Antonius was angling to become one of these new mega-tribunes. And Antonius was now under the suspicion of the Optimates, the political conservative party, for another reason. It seemed like Antonius was up to something with Catiline. I mean, they had run together as partners, and it was only after Catiline's debt, debt cancellation plan was revealed to, like, you know, everyone, that the Optimates panicked and threw their support from Catiline and Antonius to Cicero and Antonius. But Antonius had a heavy debt. Perhaps he would welcome Catiline's potential rise to power, or even actively work to bring it about. So the situation in Rome is, to put it mildly... Not in great shape. Pro-Catiline assemblies are pushing radical new reform and positions, which is creating instability. Catiline is hosting meetings at his house with an inner circle of followers, probably up to no good, therefore causing instability. The economic crisis is still economic crisising, which is causing instability. Pompey is off conquering the east and therefore definitely not in Rome, which is causing instability. 
the descendants of the prescribed are demanding their rights back, which is causing instability. Some provinces are going into revolt, which is causing instability. The Optimates are smashing the panic button as hard as they can, which is causing instability. And one of the consul's loyalty is questionable, which is causing... Yep, you guessed it. Instability. What fun. So, this is not the environment that anyone wants to come to power in, but it was the one Cicero got handed. And he actually handled the flaming pile of mush that was the current state of Roman politics pretty well. His first priority was to secure the allegiance of Antonius, because if the two consuls were at odds, then nothing was going to get done, like, ever. He promised Antonius a lovely governorship of Macedonia, a wealthy province north of Greece, and Cicero himself turned down the chance to serve as a governor of Gaul, which is like modern-day France-ish. Antonius immediately took this bribe, because, you know, unofficially it essentially was a bribe, and proceeded to begin supporting whatever Cicero said without question. I'm sure the pro-Catiline boys loved how their most powerful ally had been turned into a yes-man. With Antonius now pacified and the higher levels of government stabilized, Cicero turned on the tribunes and their proposed law. Calling the Senate to session, he attacked those in the chamber who had been supporting the law in a series of speeches. Quote, You make a mistake if you think that the Senate approves of what is said by me, but that the inclinations of the people are different. All men who wish to be safe themselves will follow the authority of the consul, a man uninfluenced by evil passion, free from all suspicion of guilt, cautious in danger, not fearful in contest. But if any one of you cherishes a hope that he may be able to, in a turbulent state of affairs, promote his own interests, first of all, let him give up hoping for any such thing as long as I am consul. But if you, O conscript fathers, uh, conscript fathers like a fancy word for senator, assist me with your zeal and energy in defending our common dignity, then in truth, I shall accomplish that of which our republic is at present in the greatest possible need. I shall make the authority of this order, which existed so long among our ancestors, appear after a long interval. He then turned on the tribune himself, who had proposed the law, saying, quote, I will resist eagerly and vigorously, and I will not permit men, while I am counsel, to bring forth these plans against the republic which they have so long been mediating. You make a great mistake, O Rullus, uh, Rullus is the name of the tribune, you and some of your colleagues, when you hope that, being in opposition to a consul who studied the interest of the people in reality, not by making a vain parade of so doing, you would be able to gain popularity while overturning the republic. I challenge you. I invite you to the assembly, and I will accept the Roman people as an umpire between us. End quote. Cicero's talent for speaking again won the day. He went to the tribunes like, absolutely not, you're not doing this, this is nuts, all of this is nuts, and even challenged him. You and me, we'll go down to the assembly, these people who you claim to represent right now, and we'll see who they like better. Repeatedly, his delivery was so forceful that his opponents could not even muster a response. Instead, Rullus, the tribune, took Cicero at his word, and summoned the council to the people's assembly. Cicero, mo momentum on his side rallied the senators and led them in a march out of the Senate building and straight to the meeting area of the public assemblies. You know, I like to imagine the scene in my head sometimes. Imagine, you're part of the plebeian assembly, just chilling and vibing in your little meeting area when you hear a commotion at the door. You go over to investigate, only to be pushed aside by a rampaging horde of old men in togas determined to eviscerate, among other things, your proposed zoning law. You see, this is when politics used to be fun. 
Cicero marches in at the head of these senators and makes his case directly to the people, directly to the assembly. Quote, I, O Romans, know in what condition I received the Republic on the 1st of January, full of anxiety, full of fear. There was no evil, no misfortune which the good people were not dreading and the bad looking out for. Every sort of seditious design against the existing constitution of the Republic and against your tranquility was said to be in contemplation. Some such to have actually been set foot on the moment we were elected consuls. All confidence was banished from the forum, not by the stroke of any new calamity, but by the general suspicion entertained by our courts of justice, and by the disorder which they had fallen into, and by the constant reversal of previous decisions. New authority, new extraordinary powers, suited not to commanders, but to kings, were supposed to be aimed at. And I did not only suspect these things, but clearly saw them, for indeed there was no secret being made of what was done. I said in the Senate that I would, in this magistracy, prove a council devoted to the interest of the people. For what is there so advantageous to the people as peace? Which not only the animals to whom nature has given sense, but even the horses and the fields appear to me to rejoice. What is so advantageous to our people as liberty, which is sought out and preferred to everything, not only by men, but even by the beasts? What is so advantageous to the people as tranquility? which is so delightful a thing that both you and your ancestors and every brave man thinks it worth his while to encounter the greatest labors in order to enjoy tranquility, particularly if he be a man in command or a man of high rank. And therefore we are bound to give great praise and show great gratitude to our ancestors because it is owing to their labors that we are able to enjoy our tranquility without risk. How then can I avoid being devoted to the interests of the people, O Romans? When I see all these things are peace abroad, and liberty, which belongs to the Roman race and the Roman name, and our domestic tranquility, and everything, in short, which is considered by you as valuable or honorable, entrusted to the good faith, and, as it were, to the protection of my consulship." End quote. So the basic gist of that was that Cicero marched into the assemblies and said that we may seem bad right now, but think about it. We have all of these great things that our ancestors fought for and gave to us. Why would we throw it away? And that these new powers that you're proposing for these tribunes, these aren't the powers of representatives. These are the powers of kings. Kings which we fought wars to get rid of, to make ourselves a republic, to give us a constitution. And the people probably began to shift uncomfortably, thinking, I mean, well, this guy has a point. And we did elect him, after all. He's on our side, right? Cicero's argument was that now was not the time to try and upend society. One does not burn down a house if the roof starts to sag, but instead fixes the roof. Plus, that's a lot of power you're given this new position of yours, but, you know, they're totally not going to abuse it or whatever, right? I mean, abusing power. That's never happened in Rome. I... Oh. Cicero's appeal to the People's Assembly worked, and they got the law for the ten new super-powerful positions scrapped. In fact, his speaking had apparently been so powerful that the Tribune straight up scrapped all of their other projects, too. So, Antonius's loyalty has been confirmed, the mobs of angry plebeians have been made agreeable, the radical voices on the People's Assembly have been hit with a hard reset, and the city is, more or less, stabilized. 
Cicero had done all of this not with wealth or with military force, but with words. And with that, there was a feeling among the optimates that, hey, we're good. The threat's been crushed, our wealth and privilege is safe, and Catiline has been neutralized. Uh, spoiler alert. Catiline has most definitely not been neutralized. So Catiline and company were not exactly thrilled. They had been supporters of this push to make these new super powerful positions and of a political revolution in general, you know, taking power from the old men of the Senate and giving it to the people and, you know, maybe just a little for themselves on the side. So they were defeated, but they were far from done. I mean, sure, they had poked the metaphorical bear and the metaphorical bear had not so metaphorically blown up in their faces, but hey. This is why we test things, right? So, while stung by the series of punches Cicero had thrown, Catiline's faction was determined to press on, especially when grim news came from the east. Pompey, who had been away all this time bringing the eastern provinces to heel, had mopped up the last of his opponents and was on his way back to Rome with his army. And unlike Cicero, who fought potential revolution with words, Pompey would probably fight it with an army and sharp objects. If the Catalan Catalanarian revolutionaries, and they were now becoming total revolutionaries, wanted to succeed, they had to act. Now. Catiline was also being heavily encouraged by another group of people who seemed to never go away. Sulla, or, well, more specifically, the old veterans of his armies, many of whom dreamed of the glory days when they could conquer and loot cities that opposed them at will, and when they were powerful because of their service to their dictator. He put in place a contingency plan, or the beginnings of one, by sending one of his allies, Gaius Manlius, who was one of Sulla's old commanders, to the region of Etruria, to the north, to rally the remnants of Sulla's armies there. Catiline also sent other agents, if needed, to create unrest and chaos in other areas of Italy. But before going all the way and committing to building an army and fermenting unrest across the Republic, he was going to make one last attempt at a legal grab at power. And so he ran for consul again. Now supporters of Catiline flocked to the city from like all over to support his campaign, but he wasn't content with merely winning. Catiline wanted some revenge. If he won, the whole city would probably start going nuts with celebrations and counter-celebrations and protests and anti-protests. You know, almost something we'd recognize today, but with significantly more bloodshed. And in the chaos, he wanted to send a team of assassins to, if all went according to plan, kill Cicero and leave Catiline with as little opposition as possible in his position. So the plan was, if everything goes right, Catiline goes to Rome, gets elected consul, Cicero gets assassinated in the chaos, all of his enemies are gone and Catiline can just, you know, do his thing. But that's if everything goes to plan. And all does not, in fact, go according to plan. Catiline had been holding meetings with his inner circle in Rome to plan how such an overthrow of the Optimates might go down. In attendance at these meetings was this guy named Quintus Curius. So our friend Quintus, like many aristocrats who supported Catiline's plan, was in debt. 
so much in debt that his mistress, a woman named Fulvia, had decided he wasn't worth it and was going to leave him for someone in more stable financial straits. To stop her, Quintus said, Wait, babe, don't worry. I've got this. It's going to be taken care of. I've got this new project with the boy. It's going to get rid of the debt once and for all. You know. Oh, Quintus. When Fulvia asked, Well, well what is this project? Quintus was like, Oh, I probably shouldn't tell you. And then he told her. Quintus cracked and revealed the budding conspiracy to Fulvia. Fulvia went to Cicero's wife, Terentia, and Terentia went to Cicero. And Cicero now knows everything. Well, not everything, everything. Everything that Fulvia and Quintus know. By now, Cicero was super suspicious of Catiline. I mean, he already had his suspicions, and now he has an actual allegation. However, Fulvia's allegation was not enough evidence to bring Catiline to trial before the Senate. He was, after all, a noble and had all the wealth and privilege and the fact that you need so much in evidence to indict a noble in ancient Rome. All those kind of perks that came with that occupation. So, Cicero, realizing he wasn't going to get enough evidence in time before the election, and that if the election came, Catiline was probably going to murder a lot of people, including Cicero, he decided on a more aggressive option. Cicero issued a decree postponing the elections and then immediately had Catiline hauled into the Senate for questioning. Now, the Senate was not exactly thrilled. I, I mean, dude, you beat Catiline. It's over. We won. Why are you postponing elections and why do we have to be here for this? <sighs> so, Catiline strode into the Senate building full of confidence. He knew many senators were skeptical of Cicero's motives and he believed maybe even that some, some in the chamber, just maybe, supported him. He saw this as his big moment, his macho, heroic stand in the face of opponents and his chance to make a statement. So when Cicero began questioning him, he defiantly taunted, quote, what harm am I doing? If, when there are two bodies, one lean and wasted but possessing a head, the other big and strong even though it lacks one, I myself put a head to the body that lacks one, end quote. In English? All right, Cicero, you're in charge of the Senate, sure. But the Senate is weak and powerless. The people, while leaderless, are strong. And I will make myself their leader. What's wrong with that? And more, what are you going to do about it? This swaggering conference of Catiline did in fact make a statement, but perhaps not the one he would have liked. This declaration, boring on a straight-up threat against the nobility, made Cicero and company super-duper uncomfortable. But Cicero was a shrewd politician in his own right, and could play the crowd just as much as Catiline. He left the Senate building after the interrogation with an escort of supporters, but before he left he put on this breastplate, a big piece of armor to protect himself. The party went down to the Campus Martius, one of the most densely populated areas of the city, kind of like downtown Rome. Once there, he accidentally, but like totally not accidentally, let his tunic slip, revealing the armor he'd been forced into wearing for his safety. The people around him saw this and were horrified, like, who could possibly be threatening Cicero? We like Cicero. Who put him in danger? When rumors started that Catiline had been threatening Cicero, the people were like, whoa, 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 buddy. I don't think so. The fact that many pe people supported Catiline did not mean they hated Cicero, and the arrogant threats from the Catalinarian faction rankled quite a few people, especially the uncommitted, ah, uh, the wrong way. And so, when election time came around near the end of the year, Catiline was again rejected in favor of two men, 
Silenus, and Murena, neither of whom were Catalinarian supporters. The senators were skeptical of Catal Cicero's claims that Catiline wanted revolution, but they still hated the guy and definitely did not want to see Catiline as consul. So consul, Catiline has run for consul again, and Catiline has lost again. And this is the turning point for Catiline. His support was waning. He had lost all hope of a political seizing of power. The Optimates had reasserted their control, and Pompey drew near every day. In his mind, he had no choice. It was either peacefully submit and be tossed to the curb, or go nuclear. And Catiline went nuclear. If the old guard was not going to be toppled peacefully, then Catiline was determined to topple them with force. Orders were sent. Catalinarian agents across Italy sprang into action. They initiated unrest across the peninsula, even going as far as to incite a slave revolt, which was like a huge thing back then, in the southern city of Capua. In Etruria, Gaius Manlius, the guy Catiline had sent a while ago to, you know, scout the area, find out where all Sulla's veterans are, began assembling an army, built around a corps of Sulla's veterans supplemented by impoverished recruits. In Rome, Catiline and his inner circle began to organize, to ravage the city from the inside out and seize control in a violent coup. Catiline had lost. There would be hell to pay. The revolution was a go. And the Catalinary conspiracy begins. A couple days after this, around midnight, one of the servants at Cicero's house heard knocking at the door. He opened it and was probably shocked to find Crassus himself, the wealthiest man in Rome, and Cicero's enemy, flanked by two of the most powerful senators in Rome. Crassus immediately tells the porter to go wake Cicero up, like, right now, it's an emergency. Cicero, probably half asleep, made his way to the door and greeted the three unexpected midnight visitors, likely with some caution, but I'm sure he snapped wide awake when he heard what Crassus had to say. Earlier that evening, Crassus had been eating dinner when a servant had brought him a pack of letters that had been delivered to his home by an unknown messenger. They were addressed to several people, all prominent senators, but there was one addressed specifically to Crassus. He took this one and opened it, noticing two things immediately. One, there was no signature, nor any indication of who had written the letter. And two, the letter was direct and to the point. A massive slaughter is going to be caused by Catiline. The slaughter is imminent. Crassus should evacuate himself and leave the city. The revolutionary army will attack on October 27th. Crassus receives, receives this letter the night of October 20th. Seven days to the revolution. Without even bothering to open the other letter, Crassus woke Marcus Marcellus and Metellus Scipio, two other prominent nobles, and like, holy crap, Metellus Scipio, he is super important, but tragically, in the interest of time and of my sanity, we're not going to talk about him much. So if you're interested, look him up, Metellus Scipio. Fun dude. Anyways, this gang of three goes straight to Cicero's house. This is still in the middle of the night. And Crassus was super not cool about having to go to Cicero. There was still a lot of bad blood between them, but he went for three reasons in order of importance. One, Crassus does not appear to have wanted a violent Catalinarian revolution. Two, 
Crassus' son was one of those people who are super into like books and literature and stuff like that, and so he idolized his father's enemy, Cicero, who was at the forefront of Roman literature. And three, while it doesn't seem that Crassus had any involvement in the conspiracy, he had been allies with Catiline, and even occasionally stood with him against Pompey and the other Optimantes. Crassus and Catiline were friends. So if someone found out he had gotten this letter warning him to flee the city from a coup his friend was going to start, and Crassus didn't tell everyone, he was going to look super suspicious. Unless, of course, he turned in these letters as proof of his loyalty. Now, there are some allegations that these letters are fake, written by Cicero to have an excuse to prosecute Catiline in front of the Senate. There was no address, and we don't know who the mysterious messenger was, but this is only a theory, and it seems odd that Cicero would craft such a plan that so depended on his strongest enemies coming to him. Perhaps one of the conspirators got cold feet, and in a moment of conscience went behind his allies' backs and hastily scrawled letters to warn the senators, or at least the recipients of the letters, and give them a chance to run. Or maybe the letters really were from, a, from the conspirators as a whole, seeking to spare any potential allies in the nobility they might have from the potential carnage. Regardless of origin, the letters were the proof that Cicero needed. He immediately convened the Senate that morning, bringing the letters Crest had provided with him. When the chamber came to order, Cicero called the names of several senators. All those who had a letter addressed to them were called. When those who had been called, probably a little confused as to what was going on, stood up and made themselves known, Cicero handed them the letter that had been addressed to them and told them, one by one, to go ahead, read it out loud. Every letter bore the same message. An attack is imminent, and flee the city. The Senate was likely stunned as the last letters were read. Then someone, who was evidently a bit more tuned in to military affairs, piped up. Hey, um, so there are like reports of an army forming in Etruria. Did one of you order that? Awkward silence. Yeah, okay. Didn't think so. The crisis was immediate, and so the Senate took a very extreme step, one that had only been taken a few times before in times of super great emergency. They proclaimed a Senatus Consultum Ultimum. This emergency declaration meant that the Council was given emergency and total powers to deal with the crisis. Cicero, until further notice, was the dictator of Rome. From this point on, I'm going to refer to the forces of Cicero and the Optimates as Republican, and those of Catiline's revolutionaries as Catilinarian, because it makes my life so much easier. Great. Anyways, the Republican forces were now rushing to counter this insurgency. Cicero, with his new authorities from the Senatus Consultum Ultimum, which means final Senate decree, basically, hi, we're done, it's all up to you now, had delegated all external business to a subordinate and was focused on finding and stopping the conspirators within the city of Rome itself. He surrounded himself with a large contingent of bodyguards whenever he moved through the city. Troops were scrambled to defend Rome, and an army under, under the command of a guy named Marcius Rex was dispatched against the Catalinarian force in Etruria. I don't know what Catiline's plan was exactly, but uh, this probably wasn't it. And while he had yet to be formally accused, he knew all suspicions had been thrown on him. I mean, sure, there was a revolution, but they hadn't accused him of being in charge of that revolution yet. But, like, you know, everyone, if they didn't already know, highly suspected it was him. 
But October the 27th came and went, and nothing happened. No rampaging revolutionary army materialized. The Senate started to get suspicious. Had Cicero faked this whole emergency just to make himself dictator? This is the point where things could have gone very, very badly for Cicero. But luckily, on October the 28th, reports came in that the aforementioned rampaging revolutionary army did in fact exist, and was inciting open revolt in Etruria under the command of Manlius. The Senate's faith in Cicero was restored. So what did this giant army do about the tiny Republican army that was bugging it? Well, actually not a whole lot. They kind of just did nothing. Manlius had his troops loot the surrounding area to keep to find supplies to keep the army sustained, but besides that, it kind of just sat there. Apparently, this was because Manlius was waiting for Catiline's final go-ahead order before actually, you know, moving. But this order was just not coming. I don't even know if Catiline knew he was supposed to give it. And besides, Catiline had a few more pressing concerns. By the night of November the 7th, Catiline was preparing to ditch the city and take control of Manlius's army himself. But he stayed behind for a while so he could give his final orders to the conspirators within the city. There were a fair number of these top conspirators, all well-off noble men, but the names you'll want to remember are Quintus Curius, remember he was the lover of Fulvia, and the one who leaked the plot to her in the first place, Gaius Cornelius Sethagus, apparently one of the more violent members of the conspiracy, and Lentulus Sura, the overseer of the operation in the city. So Quintus Curius, Sethagus, and Sura. Sura came from a prominent family, but had fallen in with a less pleasant crowd as time went on. His debauchery even led him to be expelled from the Senate, which didn't happen a ton. He was accused of bribery, financial mismanagement, you know, fun stuff like that. So this all-around not-fun dude is in charge of the conspiracy in Rome. And also, side note, Sura means leg. Roman names are the best. Anyway, Sura was in charge of the conspiracy in Rome, and he had one heck of a plan. Literally. The plan was this. The conspirators had stored a large supply of weapons and fire-making supplies in Sethagis's house. They also took a group of a hundred Catalinarian loyalists and divided the city into sections, which each loyalist being assigned a certain number of sections, so like, you take this street and you take that street, and so on and so on. Once things really got going, these loyalists were meant to grab supplies from Sethagis's house, disperse to their assigned streets, and set fire to everything they could. More teams were assigned to take positions around the aqueducts and water supply, and kill anyone, civilian or not, who tried to carry water to fight the fires. In the Chaos and Inferno, a last group of conspirators were to hunt down and murder as many senators and optimates as they could, along with their families and anyone who got in their way. With one major exception, the children of Pompeii were to be captured alive. When the great general, still on his way back to Rome at this time, swept in like an avenging archangel, the conspirators would use his children as hostages to force him to back off. So this plan is kind of messed up. Burn the city, murder the optimates and their families, and kill any civilians trying to save their homes and neighborhoods. Some historians are skeptical of the authenticity of this plan. I mean, what's the point in having a revolution if there's literally nothing left standing? How were the conspirators going to rally the people's support with such wanton destruction of their homes? But the fact is that that is that these weapons did exist. There was a plan, and whatever that plan was, it called for bloodshed. 
maybe if not as much as, as the sources seem to indicate. Revolutions are rarely peaceful, especially ones built on less than stellar ideals with less than stellar leaders. Perhaps the conspirators thought that, if a city must burn for them to take power, then so be it. If the old older was not going to die, then Lentulus was going to kill it, by whatever means necessary. Catiline's plan was ready, and his forces were all set to burn the city and take control. But first, he was determined to get rid of Cicero. The consul, now with the full powers of a dictator, was the greatest threat to him. That night, the group met and agreed on a plan. Sethagus and one of the other conspirators would go to Cicero's house and ask to speak with him, and then, once inside, kill him. It might have worked, too, if the assassins hadn't got, had gotten there first. But they hadn't. Fulvia and Quintus Curius were the ones who got there first. Remember Curius? The one who had originally leaked the plan to convince his mistress Fulvia to stay with him? It seems he had cold feet, a crisis of conscience. We don't know what motivated him, but we do know this. Curius decided that he would have no part in this massacre. Instead, he became one of Cicero's top informants, his man on the inside. He was aware of the assassin's plan, he informed Fulvia, and Fulvia went to Cicero that same night, making this the second time he's been woken up at some ungodly hour because of some Catiline shenanigans. She arrived at the house mere hours before the would-be assassins and gave Cicero the warning. So that morning, Sethagis and his companions strolled up to Cicero's house all casual and found the gates barred and locked. Demanding entrance, they were refused by the staff and the guards who had been told, do not let these nutjobs in. In retrospect, they probably should have just given up after it was clear they weren't getting through the gate, but they didn't. Apparently, instead, they started getting a little bit angry and made quite a, quite a disturbance of themselves, yelling and demanding that they be let in. This was quite possibly the most suspicious thing they could have done, and it was only another confirmation to Cicero that these guys are up to no good. And Cicero was now done. He was so done. First you try to burn the Republic, and now you're trying to kill me. Like, you know, crossing a line, you guys. That afternoon, he summoned the entire Senate to, the, to one of the city's temples. All of the senators were, were, were required to come, even Catiline, if only to continue the facade of innocence. The mood in the chamber was tense. When Catiline sat down on the bench, every other senator nearby stood up and found new seats, leaving Catiline sitting alone in his own little corner on a bench by himself. Cicero had the floor. I imagine the room would have been dead silent as Cicero and Catiline glared at each other. Then Cicero began what would become his most famous series of speeches. Catiline is one of the few people in history to hold the very unenviable position of being on the receiving end of the full fury of Cicero's oratory in person. Cicero accused Catiline of endangering the state, of governing not with words but with weapons. He claimed he wanted to show mercy, but Catiline was leaving him no choice. How dare he enter this chamber? How dare he pretend to be a member of the Senate, a Roman? Couldn't he see the guards everywhere? The Republican forces preparing for a fight? Couldn't he see that he was caught and found out that it was over and for heaven's sake, why haven't we killed this guy yet? Quote, In the name of heaven, Catalina, how long do you propose to exploit our patience? Do you really suppose that your lunatic activities are going to escape our retaliation evermore? 
are there to be no limits to this audacious, uncontrollable swaggering? Look at the garrison of our Roman nation which guards the Palatine by night. Look at the patrols ranging the city, the whole population gripped by terror, the entire body of loyal citizens massing at one single spot. Look at this meeting of our Senate, behind strongly fortified defenses. See the expressions on the countenances of every one of these men who are here. Have none of these sights made the smallest impact on your heart? You must be well aware that your plot has been detected. What a scandalous commentary on our age and its standards. For the Senate knows about these things. The Consul sees them being done, and yet this man still lives. Lives! He walks right into the Senate. He joins in our national debates, watches and notes and marks down with his gaze each one of us he plans to assassinate. And we? How brave are we? Just by getting out of the way of his frenzied onslaught, we feel we are doing patriotic duty enough? Shall I show, by what I say, that I am not impelled by hatred, although I ought to be? On the contrary, I am moved by pity, which you do not deserve. A little while ago, you walked into the Senate. Here was this large gathering of members, many of whom were friends and relatives of your own, and yet out of all these men, who offered you a single word of greeting? Within all of human memory, no one else has been treated in such a way. When this is what happens, do you have to wait for the hostility to be expressed in words as well? The blow against you has already been struck by that terrible verdict of silence. And then again, when you arrived in the Senate, every seat near you was promptly vacated. As soon as you took your place, all of the formal consuls, who have you repeatedly marked down for, for assassination, left that entire area of seats unoccupied and empty. Well, how does this make you feel? I really believe that if my slaves were scared of me, as all of your fellows, fellow citizens are scared of you, I should be forced to leave my home altogether. Do you not have comparable feeling that you ought to go away from the city? So these are the omens, Catalina with which I bid you to get off to your wicked and traitorous war. Your departure will be the cause of supreme salvation for our state. It will cause your ruin and downfall, and the extermination of those who have been your accomplices in every one of your murderous atrocities. And as for these rogues, whom every patriot hates, the enemies of our country and the ravishers of Italy, united in their infamous alliance by a compact of abomination, you will immolate them, dead or alive, in retribution without End. End quote. That was a long one, and it's not even close to the full speech, but I just couldn't resist. It's such a good one. And it maybe wasn't exactly a speech. There's some evidence that Cicero didn't give a big, long speech, but rather, rather these were points taken from a back-and-forth debate between him and Catiline. But the end result was the same. The speeches against Catiline, called the Catiline Orations, are remembered as Cicero's best for a reason. He mopped the floor with Catiline. There are even some stories that the senators on the benches nearest to Catiline began to edge even further away from him as the wrath of Cicero was delivered, as if somehow the force of Cicero's words was pushing them back. Cicero demanded that Catiline leave the city, like, immediately. Catiline responded with something along the lines of, Well, why are we trusting him? He wasn't even born in our social class. You should believe me, because, you know, my family's been noble for a lot, many years, not this upstart who doesn't belong here. And... Normally, the Optimates would eat this kind of class-baiting thing right up, but this was a special case. 
As Catiline tried to make his defense, the other senators were having none of it and began to shout him down. Now, Catiline was extremely ticked off by this point, and he stormed out, hurling threats and abuse at the chamber and declaring that this is a sham, you're all a sham, this sucks, you all suck, I hate you. Okay, well, not really. But he did say some rather not nice things on his way out, arguing that he was being forced into exile without a trial, and even offered to put himself under house arrest at Cicero's home to, pr to prove his loyalty. However, late in that day, sensing that he was in fact found out and probably realizing it was best to just dip, he rallied 300 of his supporters and marched out of Rome. This mini-army also carried with them the standard of a magistrate. This standard, among other things, symbolized the right of whoever was carrying it to use deadly force. So, you know, so much for subtlety. Now, Catiline's departure was ostensibly because he was going into a self-imposed exile's protest against this ridiculous sham trial and fake justice, but um, no one was surprised when he didn't, in fact, do that. Instead, he went straight for Manlius's army, ready to take control and march on the city. And this settled the question once and for all in the Senate. Catiline had fled the scene, meaning he was guilty. Both Catiline and Manlius were declared public enemies. Now, Antonius, the other consul who hasn't really been doing anything this whole time, was given an army and told to chase down Catiline. Cicero then gave his second speech against Catiline, the second Catiline oration, to the people, arguing that Catiline only wanted power and that he had no love or respect for the plebeians. And we see this theme in Rome and all throughout history time and time and time again. Power is with the people. It doesn't matter if you have the best clothes, the finest weapons, the most money, there are always going to be a heck of a lot of more of the people, or mobs, masses, whatever you want to call them. The end result is the same. Cicero had to get the plebeians on his side for this to work. Catiline's departure meant that the conspirators in the city were left to their own devices, which I'm sure is going to go great. Around this time, a pair of ambassadors from the Allobroges tribe, a tribe conquered by the Romans in Gaul, arrived in the city to protest against what they saw as an oppressive Roman government. This didn't have anything to do with Catiline's movement or unrest. They'd come a while ago, and this was just a regularly scheduled thing. But the Roman conspirators saw this as a golden opportunity and approached the two ambassadors to try to convince them to get their tribe in the north to incite a revolt in their region. Now, it's understandable why the conspirators thought the ambassadors would agree. Both groups Groups disliked the Senate and the Roman government, but these ambassadors were also not zealots, and committing your entire tribe to revolution is kind of a big step. They talked it over, and then consulted some contacts in Rome, and these contacts told them that, hey, Catiline and his guys are probably not going to win this, and you can probably curry favor with the Roman government if you win, and you side with it, so... Ah, shoot. They talked it over and then consulted some contacts in Rome, and these contacts told them that, hey, Catiline and his guys are probably not going to win this, and you can probably curry favor with the Republican government if you side with them instead. So the ambassadors decided that, no, we don't want any part of this conspiracy, thanks, and reported the conspirators to Cicero instead. And this is what one might call a spectacular failure on the part of the conspirators. Ka-ching, gold mine, this is exactly what Cicero needed. He told the ambassadors to play along and act like they had agreed to the plan, and then see if they could grab any tangible evidence. 
so the ambassadors went back to the conspirators and said, like, hey, yeah, sure, we're in, totally. And also, could you maybe write your plan down somewhere and sign it, too, so we can pre present it to our tribe? That would be great. Thanks. Oh, boy. Believe it or not, the conspirators obliged. They wrote down their entire plan, and then some of them signed the paper with their names. Advice to any of you out there planning a coup? Don't do that. They assigned one of their own, a man named Titus of Croton, to escort the ambassadors with the documents back to their tribe, having no idea that the ambassadors were in fact spies for Cicero. And if it feels like the conspirators are kind of improvising a lot of this stuff on the fly, well then you're feeling correct. Plutarch reports the conspirators acting haphazardly and carefree, and not treating the matter with nearly as much gravity as was needed. Cicero, on the other hand, was cold and calculating. He had spies everywhere, even many within the ranks of the conspirators. He knew every move they would make before they made it. The way Plutarch puts it, the, the conspirators are playing a drunk game of tic-tac-toe, while Cicero is playing 12-dimensional chess. So, Titus and the ambassadors left, more, left Rome and went north, and of course they never made it. Cooperating with the ambassadors, Republican soldiers ambushed the group at night while they tried to cross a bridge. Titus was arrested, the Allobroges got a nice pat on the back, and the documents with the plans were seized. The next day, Cicero again convened the Senate for one final blow. He read the letters, which again were signed by the conspirators with their plans, out loud. Then he brought in several of his spies and witnesses who were inside the conspiracy to testify more details, including the location of the weapons intended to be used. Concerned, the Senate dispatched one of the praetors to Sethagis' house. The Republican squad stormed in and found all the weapons and combustibles right where the witnesses said they would be. Finally, Titus of Croton, the messenger that got arrested with the ambassadors, was brought before the chamber and offered immunity if he testified. And boy, did he testify. That was the straw that finally broke the camel's back. Lentulus was arrested and stripped of his Senate position. He, along with Sethagis and three other lead conspirators, were tossed into prison. Cicero then left the building and addressed the crowds outside, explaining what had been done and telling them to rejoice, and that the city had been saved, and not to honor him, but the city itself. For those of you keeping track, this is the third Catiline oration. The conspiracy within the city of Rome is crushed. But now the Senate is faced with another problem. What are we supposed to do with these guys that we captured? Cicero was especially torn. He could try to have them executed, but there were a few major problems with that. First, Cicero was not someone who enjoyed generally killing his fellow citizens. There was also the issue that the five ringleaders were nobles and still might have powerful friends. If he executed them, he might be accused of abusing his power. And after all, nobles or not, they were Roman citizens. You don't just do that to Roman citizens, even if they are traitors and want to kill everyone. But if Cicero let the conspirators live, they might just think, well, there's going to be no consequences for us, and even start on, start on even more deadly plots against the city. Plus, Cicero needed to keep the mob on his side. Once again, the mob comes back to ruin everything. Cicero was not a man of great dramatic action like the heroes of the ancient world. Rather than brash, manly swagger, and confidence, Cicero was restrained and calculating. 
This probably made him a better person in general, and was likely the able he was reason he was able to trounce the conspiracy so completely. I mean, the conspirators had been tough, big, strong men of action. They'd gotten their butts kicked. But the mob still might view him as unmanly, you know, weak, if he did not execute these guys. If the Senate lost the support of the plebeians at this critical time because they showed what was interpreted to be weakness, aka, you know, mercy, well, they were all kind of screwed. The Senate met the next morning to debate. The consul-elect, Silanus, remember him, was the first to speak. He said that these guys should suffer the utmost punishment. Oh, boy. See, this one is tricky, because him saying they should suffer the utmost punishment would usually imply the death penalty, but it's just vague enough that Solanus could backtrack and say he meant something else if, you know, the Senate didn't go for the death penalty. Yay, politicians. So, one person has spoken, and they kind of just said, oh, you know, I'll just go with whatever you guys think. This debate is not starting off well. The debate went on, with each senator voicing their opinion, and eventually the chamber seemed to be wavering toward a death penalty. But then the floor was given to a young senator, young, sure, but already a rising star in Roman politics, and a famous general to boot, Gaius Julius Caesar. Hey, and we're back here to the land of important people you should probably remember. I'm sure most of you have heard the name Julius Caesar, but from now on he'll be playing a bigger part, so pay attention. Anyways, Caesar, who was one of the populares, the political party more in favor of rallying the common people, the anti-conservative group, had a different idea. Well, don't kill them, he said but rather confiscate their property and have them imprisoned in different towns and cities across Italy of Cicero's choosing. Keep them there until Catiline's defeated, and then we can figure out what to do with them. If this seems kind of merciful, it is. And perhaps for good reason. Cicero had long been suspicious of Caesar, and there is some evidence he might have been involved in the conspiracy. He was friends with Catiline, and had been known to mingle with some of the conspirators currently in prison. Cicero had investigated him, but unlike the other ones who are now in prison, he hadn't been able to find any concrete evidence that C Caesar was involved. And history isn't sure. But if Caesar was? Well, he covered his tracks very, very well. Cicero was never able to collect enough evidence to bring a man of such large standing as Caesar to trial. So was he a part of it? It's possible. Anyways, after Caesar had proposed this, Cicero who had previously been leaning towards execution, spoke. He didn't really speak in favor of one idea or the other, and he wasn't opposed to Cicero's, the, excuse me, to Caesar's plan. He cited the benefits in both that plan and the earlier plan of execution. He did not, however, definitively endorse one or the other. Cicero's allies realized that, wait, hold on a second. If this is Caesar's idea, we can do it, and have the him take the blame if it goes wrong, or we can do it, and take the credit for supporting it if it goes right. Uh, Cicero was never able to collect enough evidence to bring a man of such large standing as Caesar to trial. But if he was involved, and it's very possible he was, he covered his tracks very, very well. Anyways, after Caesar had proposed this, Cicero, who had previously been leaning towards execution, spoke. 
He actually wasn't opposed to the idea, citing the benefits in both Caesar's plan and the earlier plan of execution. He did not, however, definitively endorse one or the other. Cicero's allies realized that, wait, if this is Caesar's, Caesar's idea, we can do it and have him take the blame if it goes wrong, or we can take credit for supporting it if it goes right, you know, a win-win. So the tide in the Senate began to turn, with more and more senators supporting Caesar's plan, and it looked like it was going to pass. But then our second important player in this episode came up, Marcus Porcius Cato. Cato! Cato is important too, if you couldn't tell. Also, he's there are two Catos. This one is Cato the Younger, and Cato the Elder is, like, dead, so don't worry about him. Cato was one of the arch-conservatives in the Senate. He was a force for the Optimates. He stood up and demanded that the prisoners be executed immediately, and his allies joined in. And then Cato played his trump card. He turned on Caesar and accused him of corrupt motivation. Remember, there was, and still is, suspicion that Caesar was involved in the conspiracy. Cato was a powerful speaker in his own right, and he veered the Senate back to the original position of execution. This is like a seesaw of political debate. A decree of execution was proposed, and despite Caesar's best efforts, it passed. Caesar then appealed to the tribunes. Remember, the tribunes were the people's representatives in the chamber who held veto power, but he couldn't convince them either. Cicero only so Caesar, excuse me, only scored one concession. He convinced Cicero to not confiscate the conspirators' property, but that was about it. Cicero's speech, when he eventually came around, was in favor of execution, and this was his fourth Catiline oration. The Senate decree stood. The conspirators were to be executed immediately without trial. Without a trial. They did this because there were still a lot of minor conspirators in Rome. Sure, the leaders had been arrested, but the, the, their supporters and soldiers were still out there. The Senate feared that if we let these prisoners sit in jail for too long, someone's going to break them out. So they were executed, but had no trial. They just rushed it. And there are two major mistakes Cicero makes in his career. This is one of them. Because, despite the fact that the conspirators were traitors, they were still Roman citizens. And just like American citizens are today, they were supposed to be given a fair trial. A fair trial Cicero and the Senate had deemed too risky. The fact that he had executed Roman citizens without a trial, even if it was to save the Republic, would come back to bite him. Hard. The execution was deceptively simple. Cicero escorted the prisoners personally to the prison, where they were strangled one by one. And that was it. Outside, crowds had started to gather, including some of the now leaderless Catalinarian forces. Cicero saw this, and probably guessing who they were and hoping to forestall an attempted breakout by the revolutionaries of their now dead leaders, walked into the square and shouted out, Vixere. They have lived. It's a euphemism for, well, now they're dead. It had been a long day. But when Cicero started to finally make his way back home that night, crowds flooded the streets to cheer him, hailing him as the savior of Rome. A group of nobles was assembled to escort him home, and all along the way, lights were set on roofs, indoors, in windows. He was hailed as a hero, voted great honors, and given the title Father of His Country by the Senate. 
the first person to ever bear this title. Cicero's triumph in Rome had one other major repercussion. Remember Manlius's massive army up in, up in Etruria? When the news of the collapse of the conspiracy in Rome reached them, many of the soldiers started to abandon the failing revolution. The first to go were those who had been, had been involved to try and gain wealth and or debt forgiveness. More and more started deserting, until Catiline was left with only three or 4,000 hardcore supporters. Everyone else had dipped. He knew the revolution was over. This was not going to happen. He attempted to lead his not-so-massive army in an escape through Cisalpine Gaul, the modern-day northernmost part of Italy. But the governor there, probably not liking the idea of an army of revolutionaries marching through his already uppity province, scrambled an army and moved to intercept them. With their escape north cut off, Catiline ran back south with his army, only to be cut off by the army of Antonius, Cicero's co-consul, who had been chasing him all this time. Catiline was surrounded and had no choice but to surrender or fight his way out. I bet you know which one he picked. He chose to try and fight through Antonius's army. True, Antonius had the smaller of the two Republican forces, but it's also true that Antonius had been suspected of being a conspirator, and that he and Catiline were allies. Perhaps Catiline thought Antonius wouldn't really fight hard to stop him, and while nothing can be confirmed, Antonius was, um, <clears throat> sick on the day of the fight. The fight was violent, and the fight was brief. The Catalinarian force fought ferociously, with Catiline himself leading the charge into Republican lines, but Antonius's army was just too strong. Many of the revolutionaries fought to the death. Catiline was killed in the chaos of the fighting, one death among many. Rumors say that his body was found far ahead of his own lines, surrounded by the bodies of fallen enemies. Some brutal stuff. And that was it. The Catalinarian Conspiracy is over. Catiline was a complex figure. Was he a lunatic, bent on murder and bloodshed? Or was he a patriot, a freedom fighter, determined to stand up for the oppressed masses? Well, in another lovely quirk of ancient history, we may never know. We probably will never know. All we know is what happened. And what happened was, there was a revolution, and Catiline lost. Cicero won, and the Republic was saved. At least for now, of course. His triumph over Catiline marked the pinnacle of Cicero's career, and things more or less returned to normal in the city. Of course, now it's Cicero having much, much more influence and much more renown than he had before. But here is where it seems the power and glory really start to go to his head. Remember how, in the last episode, we talked about how Cicero was sometimes too smart for his own good? He'd make these sarcastic remarks, and they were hilarious, but he'd kind of just do them at whoever was walking by. Got a reputation as kind of a jerk. Well, now that things are no longer in crisis mode and he has all this time, guess what starts happening? He really starts to get on people's nerves. He was constantly bringing up his role in the defeat of the conspiracy to the people, and in the Senate, like, every meeting, it was like, Hey guys, remember who stopped Catiline? Woohoo, that was me. Uh, he would write at length about how awesome he was. 
Now, he wasn't totally arrogant, and he gave others as much praise as he gave himself. This kind of weird generosity and arrogance thing combined. Cicero, in this time, loved being acknowledged and honored and loved, loved distinction. Back at Rome, Cicero kept up his brilliant wit and speaking skills and started to piss just a lot of people off. He was a smart aleck. Cicero had a tendency to make fun of people at, like, random for the sake of a joke. And while the jokes were actually pretty funny, and some of the people deserved it, others definitely did not. And there was this rising feeling that Cicero was a jerk. He was making a lot of enemies. Enemies who, when searching for something, anything to throw back at him, the hero of Rome, chose his execution of Roman citizens, conspirators or not, without trial as their weapon of choice. This dark little conflict actually came to a head in a, a kind of funny way. So there was this guy in Rome named Publius Clodius Pulcher. Yeah, he's important. Clodius is another one of these super flamboyant, interesting figures. Remember last episode when I talked about the alleged crimes against Catiline? and how one of them was that the now-deceased man had slept with one of the Vestal Virgins in a charge he was acquitted of? Well, guess who accused Catiline of that in the first place? Clodius. He was exiled, in part through the influence of Cato for this little stunt of falsely accusing Catiline, and instead found more inventive ways of causing mischief abroad. He went east, joined an army with his brother-in-law, didn't feel like he was getting enough credit, so, after trying to raise dissent among the ranks and failing, got put in charge of a fleet, was captured by pirates, ransomed, ended up in Syria, may have started a mutiny after ditching his brother's army, was almost killed during said mutiny, and we're just getting started. Oh, oh and I, um, I say ransomed by pirates. What really happened is that he told the pirates he was worth a heck of a ton of money, so they went to the king of Egypt, a Roman ally, to ask for a ransom. And the king offered, well, uh, not a heck of a lot of money. Clodius may have slightly overestimated his value. The pirates found the tiny ransom offered in the face of Clodius's boasting so funny that they let him go without taking any of the money. Clodius ended up back in Rome in 66 BC, just in time for his brother-in-law to find him and go off, Why are you here? Why did you ditch me? Why did you start a mutiny, you little... So yeah, for totally unrelated reasons, Clodius dips. He leaves Rome for Gaul, gets up to some super illegal stuff there, serves as part of a governor's staff, corrupt, and we actually know this governor. This is Morena. We mentioned him briefly last time. He was elected with one of, as one of the consuls after Cicero, and his election and defeat of Catiline in, in the latter's second consular campaign was the final blow that led Catiline to give up politics and opt for armed revolution. Clodius still a young man, was with Morena while Morena was in Gaul, and so was on the side of the Republican Optimates for the conspiracy. He may have even served as one of Cicero's bodyguards. And here's where things start to get nasty. Even though he had served as one of Cicero's bodyguards, Cicero and Clodius weren't, like, close. And Clodius' sister? Well, she's about to make things go way, way worse. His sister went to Cicero and was apparently pretty into him. She tried to get him to divorce his wife and marry her. 
Cicero was like, um, no way, I love my wife, and rejected her. But Cicero's wife was super annoyed at this, and probably rightfully so, and so a mini-feud started up between the two families of Cicero and Clodius. So there's already some animosity between Cicero and Clodius, and it doesn't go anywhere for a while, it kind of just sits and simmers. And eventually the time comes, a little later on, for the Bonadia ceremony. This ceremony was a religious festival held in the house of the high priest for that year. It was special because only women could attend. All the men had to vacate the house and could know nothing of the secret rites. No exceptions. The boys had to go. Now, the person occupying the position of high priest this year was, oh, not this year, that year, was Julius Caesar, which meant that the highest ranking woman in the house, in this case his mother, would be the one overseeing the ceremony. Now, Clovis and Caesar's wife, Pompeia, had apparently been in the early stages of an affair, with Clodius making the advances, I mean, geez, this guy got around. So, determined to win her love, Clodius decided to go find her one night when he knew Caesar would be absent. <laughs> cute. Well, it would have been cute if he had chosen literally any other night except the night of the Bonadia festival, the one night in which he was absolutely not allowed to show up at the house. But he did anyway. Not so cute. For some reason, Clodius decided to go ahead with his plan, but he was going to be sneaky. And by sneaky, I mean he was going to dress up in woman's clothes, pretend to be a musician, and secretly get let in the house by a maid who was aware of the plan. And this worked. The maid let him in, he was dressed as a woman, he kept a low profile, and kind of just, you know, went unnoticed. He was left waiting in the entrance hall while the maid went to go find Pompeia. They figured it was safer if he just stayed where he was and didn't walk around. If he talked to anyone, well, the jig was probably up. But Clodius was not a patient person. He waited for a while and then apparently got impatient and went to go find Pompeia himself, like the big man he was. Uh, this was a mistake. Caesar is a pretty rich, powerful dude, and his house was kind of pretty big. Clodius got lost, like, immediately. While wandering around the house looking for Pompeia, he bumped into another woman celebrating the ceremony. This other woman was like, hey, let's play a game, because that, you know, that's what people did during the ceremony. Clodius probably tried to skip on out of there, but she grabbed him and was like, what's going on? Wait, who are you? Where are you from? Clodius stopped and then gave his best impression of what a woman's voice should sound like. It, uh, it, it, it didn't work. Realizing that he was a man, the woman freaked and ran back to the party yelling about how she caught a man in the house. The music stopped and everyone else started to panic and start hiding sacred objects and stuff like that. Then Caesar's mother gra rounded up a posse, grabbed torches, and went rampaging through the house looking for this intruder. They found him, hiding in the room of the maid who had let him in. That is... awkward. So, congratulations, Clodius. You are probably one of the first examples in the history of the world of drag gone horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. And this should have been it for Clodius. Sneaking into the Bonadilla Festival as a man was bad. Sneaking into the Bonadilla Festival as a man to try and get with the high priest's wife was like the epitome of sacrilege. He was indicted and then brought to trial. And do you remember his brother-in-law, the one whose army Clodius had ditched after trying to start a revolt? Well, his name is Lucellus, 
and he also blames Clodius for ruining his marriage by sleeping with his wife, Clodius' sister. So now he's back in Rome with a vendetta, and incest is added to Clodius' rap sheet. Whoo! Yay, Clodius. Clodius has an array of powerful adversaries lined up against him, and the question is, how is he not immediately found guilty? Well, for all the powerful enemies he had, he had one even more powerful friend, or at least one more powerful not-enemy. That's right, the people. The people are like an ancient version of a get-out-of-jail-free card. And, although super hated by the Optimates, Clodius enjoyed the support of many of the common people, and this was critical. Because Caesar needed the support of the common people if he ever wanted to take power, which, spoiler alert, it's been 2,000 years, he wants, he wants to take power, he couldn't really go after Clodius, because he doesn't want to make the people mad. So, he didn't. So, Julius Caesar does not go after Clodius for trying to get with his wife. He doesn't even prosecute him in the court. And this is really interesting, because not only does he not go after Clodius, he divorces Pompeia. He didn't think that Pompeia was going to cheat on him, per se. In fact, he said the opposite, saying that I'm sure she had nothing to do with this, she would have resisted him, and maybe he was right, maybe he was wrong. But when people asked him, well, if you think that, why did you divorce her? He said, well, my wife has to be above suspicion. Basically, basically what this means is that Caesar needs his reputation to stay super high, and if his wife were involved even indirectly in a scandal, that hurts his reputation. Pompeia had become a liability, and so she had to go. Caesar can't afford liabilities if he wants to take power. Ladies, get you a man who ditches you immediately when he thinks you aren't boosting his street cred. Oh, and uh, for any Shakespeare fans, this is where the famous line, Caesar's wife must be above suspicion, comes from. Now, because Clodius had the support of many of the people, most of the jury was terrified they would be straight up lynched if they convicted him so many abstained from the vote oh and uh, also crassus bribed like all of the guys who didn't abstain to acquit clodius so that probably helped now clodius's defense was that he hadn't even been in rome the night of the festival cicero was likely the highest ranking official to be able to serve as a witness to say um yeah no he was here but he really didn't want to get involved the mobs were finicky and both a conviction or an acquittal might spur rash action. Rash action by mobs of angry plebeians usually didn't end well. And, like Caesar, Cicero wanted no part in any of it. But his wife's hatred of Clodius's family because of his sister's attempts to get with Cicero was still there, and she encouraged him to testify. This, plus Cicero, what Cicero felt was his obligation as a citizen, convinced him to testify. Unfortunately, Crassus had still bribed most of the jury. But all the same, Clodius was acquitted by a margin of six. Cicero's testimony, it hadn't worked, but he still had a commanding speaking ability. But Cicero had been right about one thing. Getting involved was a mistake. Clodius, riding high on the energy from his acquittal, was determined to take some good old-fashioned revenge on Cicero. And Clodius had a whole list of people he was mad at now that he saw, thought he was scot-free. He was annoyed at Pompeii. Clodius' revolt in the East, well, almost revolt in the East, 
would have helped Pompey, who was a rival with Lucellus, Clodius's estranged brother-in-law. Clodius thought Pompey should have helped him, and so he added Pompey to his hit list. And trying to mess with Pompey is Clodius's first mistake. Anyways, a now acquitted Clodius had bigger plans. He wanted to be elected as a tribune, but his status as a noble prevented that. So he convinced a plebeian family to adopt him, then renounced his patrician noble status. While adoption was allowed in ancient Rome, Clodius's was highly irregular and most of it was just straight up illegal. Like, he was several years older than his new quote-unquote dad. But he was still on okay, with ter okay terms with Caesar, the consul for that year, and so he got away with it. Clodius, now a fake plebeian, was elected tribune and immediately started making moves to earn the people's goodwill. He put in place laws offering free corn handouts, restricting the power of magistrates and senate officials, boosting the power of the people's assemblies, and making it so anyone could join the senate. Included among these laws, which are called the Leges Clodiae, was one law that called for anyone who executed a Roman citizen without trial to be exiled. Hmm. Anyone who executes a Roman citizen without trial for any reason should be exiled. Who is he talking about? Well, if you hadn't already guessed, yes, this is a direct jab at Cicero, who, under his supreme emergency powers, had executed the leaders of the Cat Catalinarian conspiracy before a possible breakout could be attempted. Cicero was naturally kind of freaked out by this, and he appealed to his allies in the Senate, but no one was willing to alienate Clodius, and thereby suffer the wrath of his mob. There was an attempt in the Senate to declare a decree of support for Cicero, but it was interrupted, as Tribune Clodius strode into the chamber with an armed escort, daring anyone to cross him. Spoiler alert, no one crossed him. Cicero was not without allies, however, and pretty large numbers of young men from the Knights, Cicero's original social class, marched out to support him. Unfortunately, it was rapidly becoming clear that Cicero had two choices. He could either take up arms, rally fighters to his side, and take on Clodius head-on in the street fights, or he could go into exile. Cicero did not like either of these choices. Desperate, he went to his old ally Pompey for help. Pompey had seen the chaos again unfolding in the city and went, screw this, I'm out. He was hiding out in his countryside estate, hoping this could all blow over and he would not have to get involved and make more people mad. But when Cicero's brother-in-law, and then Cicero himself, came to ask for help, Pompey was cornered. The general realized that helping Cicero would make Clodius mad, and thereby, by extension, would get the people riled up. And Pompey needed the people. Everyone needs the people. But Pompey needed the people's support to be able to check Julius Caesar's rising popularity and power. Losing the people was too great a risk, and Pompey could not risk it. And there was also the small issue of how Pompey had married Caesar's daughter, Julia. They were now technically related, awkward, and Caesar had gone to Pompey and said, Hey, you know, we're in-laws now, so please stay out of this whole Clodius Cicero thing. Now, sure, the marriage had probably been pretty political, and the Optimates, like Cato and Cicero, had been wary of it for this exact reason, of Caesar calling in a favor. But marriage was marriage, just like the will of the people was the will of the people. And so Pompey, too ashamed to face Cicero, quietly slipped out the back door. 
When Cicero arrived to ask for help, Pompey was nowhere to be found. Ouch. Pompey's betrayal of Cicero was stung. I mean, Cicero had been a key supporter of Pompey many times, but the one time that Cicero needed help, Pompey had run off. Cicero had no choice. He made a decision. He would not become a new Catiline and fight Clodius in the streets with swords for control. He would go into exile, peacefully, and no one would die. But he didn't intend to be gone forever. He and his friends had been making plans. Surely, Clodius's freewheeling and aggressive leadership style caused so much damage left unchecked that the people would want Cicero back eventually. Well, at least, that was the hope. And so, late one night, he took a statue of the goddess Minerva from his home, carved in it, quote, Minerva, guardian of Rome, end quote, and then he took it, put it in the forum, and, under the cover of darkness, with an escort from friends, he fled the city, making for Sicily, where he still had allies from his long-ago quaestorship. And that's it. Cicero, the father of his country, the title given to him by the Senate, the savior of the Republic, the guy who had stopped Catiline, who had at one point been so popular crowds would follow him in the streets with lights cheering his name, was exiled. When the news of Cicero's departure reached Clodius, he immediately went to work to capitalize on his victory. He issued a decree called, and forgive me for butchering the Latin, but interdicto aqua et igni, which means denial of fire and water. This was a symbolic action, but it meant that no one within a 500 mile radius around Italy could give him shelter or food or anything like that. But outside the city of the Rome, Clodius's popularity kinda went, uh, poof. Most people didn't give a crap about this upstart and Cicero was still much loved. Many people just ignored the order and gave Cicero whatever he needed. Cicero eventually reached the city of Lucania. The governor there, who had done super well under Cicero as consul, could not shelter him in the city. You know, as an elected official, he couldn't disobey a direct order from Rome. But there was this convenient estate that the governor owned outside the city limits, and he sent a message to Cicero saying, Oh, gee whiz, it's empty, how convenient. Why don't you go settle down there for a while? So... Clodius, if you can tell, does not have a ton of popular support in the Republic, even if he does have the Roman mobs on his side. So, while resting at this estate, estate, Cicero received some bad news. All across Italy, people had been bending or breaking the rules to provide for him, but a message had just come in from Sicily, his final destination. It was from the governor, his old friend, who said, Please, please, please do not come to Sicily. Cicero was hit hard by this news. I mean, he expected that, of all places, Sicily would be the one to stand by him. But, ironically, it was the one that had left him behind. He realized that the only place he could go where he wouldn't be a fugitive was Greece. He couldn't stay in Italy. And so he left the country behind, landing in the Greek region of Durachium. Durachium. Chiam? Dirachium. Uh. Dirachium? 
Okay. Dirachium. Great. Oh, and remember, Dirachium, our story's gonna spin back there eventually. Anyways, while in Greece, Cicero grew more and more depressed. He wanted to be back in Italy. He missed his colleagues, his friends, his reputation. He missed his family. Quote, Yes, I do write to you less often than I might. Yet, when I write to you or read a letter from you, I am in such floods of tears that I cannot endure it. Oh, that I had clung less to life. I should at least never have known real sorrow, or not much of it in my life. Yet, if fortune has reserved for me any hope of recovering at any time any position again, I was not utterly wrong to do so. But if these miseries be permanent, I only wish, my dear, to see you as soon as possible and to die in your arms, since neither gods, whom you have worshipped with such pure devotion, nor men, whom I have ever served, have made us any return. My dear Terentia, most faithful and best of wives, and my darling little daughter, and that last hope of my race, Cicero, goodbye. End quote. His son was also named Cicero. That's the last hope of his race mentioned up there. What you just heard was a letter written from Cicero to his family. He was still back in, the, back in Italy. He wrote a lot of these to friends, to old compatriots, but mostly to his family. He missed them so, so much. The letters show just an incredible emotion, a human quality. A lot of relationships in ancient Rome were political or, you know, faked for some higher purpose, but it seems like Cicero really did love his family. He cared about his wife, his daughter, and his son, and he was separated from them. So Cicero, although he has lots of friends and allies in Greece who probably like nothing more than to, than to wallop Clodius themselves, and though he has ample food and shelter and comfort, comfort is miserable. Meanwhile, Clodius is still on a political rampage in Rome. The fun never stops in ancient Rome. No, sir. First, he burned all of Cicero's property, and then, you know, just as a final dig in him, he built a temple to liberty on the remains of his enemy's house. He tried selling off the rest of Cicero's property, but to his chagrin, no one bought any of it. He also started forming these armed gangs, almost a paramilitary group, to patrol the streets and knock up any of his enemies. You know, the Nazis would have been proud. The support of the people meant that he had now become more powerful than anyone else in Rome, with the exception of the members of the First Triumvirate. Remember, the Triumvirate was the political al alliance of Crassus, Caesar, and Pompey. And while they did pool resources for collective goals, they were also constantly trying to go behind each other's backs. Clodius had to placate them in order to keep their support, so he did things like veto measures that, Cicero, that, excuse me, that Caesar did not like. Crassus's little foray with bribery had been the reason Clodius had been acquitted, after all, and so Clodius was very much in favor of Crassus. And Pompey and Clodius tolerated each other for, well, at least in the case of Pompey, stability's sake. For now. Clodius would use his newfound power without hesitation. Remember that allied king of Egypt way back when who would offer an insultingly tiny ransom for Clodius when the man had been kidnapped by pirates? Well, Clodius got him fired, well, the ancient equivalent of being fired, when the triumvirate said, hey, we want Cato to go govern Sicilia, which was kind of far away, Clodius agreed. Remember, Cato was one of the arch-conservative leaders of the Optimates, 
and had helped the convince the Senate to execute the conspirators. This was great for Claudius' disappointment because, one, he got to please the triumvirate, and two, Cato was a main potential enemy of Claudius' populist agenda, since Cato was one of the old conservative nobility. He would be sent away from Rome, if he took this governorship, for years, making it so Clodius would not have to deal with him. Oh, and also, the power and prestige that came with the governorship made Cato reconsider his previous dislike of Clodius, and so Cato stopped his attacks and even began to defend Clodius sometimes. Now, this is the point where it seems that Pompey seems to get fed up with Clodius, and Clodius seems to get fed up with Pompey. Pompey was kind of wary about how powerful Clodius was becoming, so he began publicly criticizing his policies. Now, Clodius was riding high with the swaggering confidence that the streets were his to command and that his mobs could cow anyone into submission. And so, feeling powerful, he began pub publicly attacking Pompey, finally getting that revenge he wanted for Pompey's lack of support for him and how the general had begun to criticize his policies. Now, Remember how I said the Triumvirate was always trying to go behind each other's backs? Well, there is some evidence that Crassus had some role in convincing Clodius to go after Pompey, but being honest, Clodius didn't need much convincing. He hated Pompey, and he was just raring to get some revenge. Oh, Clodius, you should have just let it go. So Clodius begun to harass Pompey, in the street, in debates, but this wasn't enough for him. Arguing with him, or publicly condemning him, was not enough for him. No, 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 no. Clodius went as far as to send squadrons of armed thugs to blockade his house. Pompey was stuck there for a long time. And I think, to all my friends in quarantine with me right now, that we can all agree that being stuck inside your house is not fun. But Clodius's power base wasn't as strong as it seemed. I mean, sure... The loudest voices were on the side of Clodius and the mobs, but the mobs were not the people, necessarily. There's always that silent majority of either anti-Clodius people or just uncommitted people who are just trying to live their lives. Not only that, but the other tribunes of the people, who had the people's support too, I mean they had been elected, were starting to get wary of Clodius. He was not the kind of guy who was fun to work with and who wants to have an argument with someone who can just send a mob to murder you and burn your house down. And Pompey... Pompey. Pompey was still called Pompey the Great. Pompey was still the people's hero. And so, when Clodius's gangs blocked up his house, Pompey said, All right, punk. You want to pay, you want to play populist? Let's play populist. Pompey had brought countless kingdoms in the east to their knees with almost no effort. He had been given the title of Imperator by his troops, a title only given to the greatest of great generals. Clodius was an upstart at the head of an angry mob, who seems to have forgotten who he was messing with. And the question comes down to, who are the people going to support? Clodius, whose claim to fame is harassing some guy who saved the Republic in a court case? Or Pompey, the soldier, the great general? The one who'd actually gone out into the field, smashed some barbarians, and shown what true Romans could do. Well, at least that's what the mobs would have thought. So Pompey begins making some plans to smash up Clodius. But first, he needs some allies. And he needs allies that are willing to go out there and harass Clodius, and attack Clodius, and not be afraid of his mobs. And his first thought? 
while his first thought was Cicero. He had always felt guilty about ditching his friend, but now he wanted the legendary speaker on his side again. So he went to the other tribunes, the not Clodius tribunes, and they started making suggestions that, hey, maybe we should bring Cicero back, you know, recall him. The tribunes, incensed at Clodius's blatant fear-mongering and abuse of power, were more than happy to go along with this, and they start making the same proposals. I mean, the people had never hated Cicero. He did save the city, after all, and they liked Pompey, and Pompey liked Cicero, so I mean, what can I say? The mob is fickle. Now, Clodius is furious at this, like, how dare they? How dare they go against the quote-unquote will of the people? And he starts adding more and more names to his hit list, becoming more and more dangerously explosive and aggressive. Clodius starts to step up his actions in the streets, sending armed bands of diehard followers to go push anyone around who he thought was not being sufficiently loyal. But remember that thing about how Clodius has to keep the triumvirate happy? Well, yeah. He didn't do that. He's picking a fight with Pompey, who is a member of the Triumvirate, one of the three most powerful men in the city. And sure, maybe he thought, oh, I'm powerful enough, I have the people behind me, I'm well-liked enough, I can replace Pompey, or at least just ditch him. But in picking a fight with the Triumvirate, and a great and popular general regardless, he probably bit off a bit more than he could chew. Pompey worked his magic, and soon he had his own street gangs roaming the streets and beating up Clodius' people. Partisans of both sides started wandering around and fighting each other, and pretty soon the street battles start, start, start turning into an almost mini-civil war. City life is totally disrupted as different factions run around and start beating each other up. And all the while, a message from Pompey is traveling to Cicero. The people are not as loyal to Clodius as you think. And the Imperator wants Cicero back.